good. I want to welcome all of our visitors, all of our guests, all of our members, longtime attenders here to Covenant Church. Uh, this is a church where our mission is plain and simple. We want to know Jesus, and we want to make him known in this local community. And, and if you've been walking with Jesus for the longest time, for as long as you can remember, or if you're just new to this church thing, you're exploring this Christianity thing for the first time, we want you to feel welcome and feel a part of this great community. And, well, today we're going to begin a new series for the rest of May and the first, I think, uh, first week or so in June. And this new series is called One Degree, Course Corrections from the New Testament. And before we get into our passage for today, I want to say a few things about why we're doing this particular series. You see, our church is becoming a little more organized lately, which I like. And as a result, we have just about most of our sermon series planned for the rest of the year, Okay. And we had something planned for May and June, but that kind of fell through, and we decided not to go with that particular series. So I was thinking, you know, what could we do for May and June? So I decided to take out my big uh, English Standard Version, my ESV Study Bible, things like that big. It's like a brick. And I was looking through it, and I'm just like, hmm, I want to find a cool book to go through. I remember looking at Galatians and liking what I saw there. And I remember looking for, through First uh, Thessalonians and liking what I saw there. And then I came across to these really, really small books of the Bible, you know, Jude, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John. And I remember thinking to myself, nah, I'm not going to do that. And then I began thinking to myself, did I just yada, yada, yada a book of the Bible? Did I totally ignore part of God's word? And then immediately I was just like, Lord, forgive me for ignoring part of your word that you may want our church to hear. And as I began looking through these small books, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. And I grew so convicted and yet so full of worship as I began to meditate on these precious words of Scripture. You see, I'm an evangelical through and through, which means I believe that this book is inerrant and it is infallible. It is God's unchanging, unfailing word. Every single book in this Bible, every single word is meaningful and relevant to all of us. It says in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, and righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete for every good works. That, that means every single word of this Bible is, worth, uh, is meaningful to all of us, including all those genealogies which you always skip over when you read through the Bible, including all those inventory that you see in Ezra about 20 gold plates and everything, it's all meaningful. And as a church, we hold the Bible in high esteem. But I think sometimes we overlook the smallest pieces of the puzzle that God, in his sovereignty, has put together in this book for our benefit. And these small books, they call us to richer, deeper places in our journey with God. And they convict us of so many things that we do wrong in the Christian life. They exhort us in 500 words or less to go deeper with God, to, to be alert to the way in our lives that we sometimes dishonor him and to love God and to love others with our whole hearts. And we've titled this sermon One Degree because we want to emphasize that these books call us to make changes in our lives that may be pretty small for many of us, but have drastic implications for the way we relate to God and relate to others as well. Let me share this interesting tidbit with you guys. Say, for instance, you're flying a plane, you're a pilot, and you set up all your coordinates correctly, and you decide to vary your direction by one degree. 
for every mile that you fly, you're going to miss your destination by 92 feet. Now, if you travel three miles with this one degree variation, you're going to miss your destination by, um, by about a football field, so probably like 33 yards. Now, think about flying 200 miles or 300 miles, 400 miles, 500 miles, and think of how, just how off course you will be when you land on the ground. One degree makes a huge difference. And these books of the Bible that we'll be looking at may be small, almost unnoticeable when you read through Scripture. But they're filled with such big ideas that if you follow the exhortations of these books, we'll be in a different place spiritually than we're at right now. So the first book we're going to be looking at today is the book of Jude. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me there to the book of Jude. It's that small book, probably less than a page before you hit the beast that is Revelation. And let me say a few words about the book of Jude, okay? One New Testament scholar called the book of Jude perhaps the most neglected book in the entire New Testament. And it's perhaps the most neglected book in the entire Bible. Now, it's one of these little books that's pretty, pretty tough to read because Jude has a lot of problems with a lot of people. He's got a bee in his bonnet. And this little book makes us uncomfortable because he uses such harsh language. And you read through it and you say to yourself, if I had Jude standing right here next to me, I'd say, hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better, bro. I'm sorry, I had to go there. I love the Beatles. But what Jude is trying to do is he's trying to give the early church a course correction from where it was headed. And what we need to remember is that the early church was not perfect. I think when we, when we talk about the early church sometimes, we sometimes idolize it because of its simplicity, because it's so focused on its mission. But it was far from a perfect group of people. And that's why the apostles like Paul and Peter and James wrote their epistles, because they were trying to solve these big problems that arose in the early church. And the particular problem that Jude is responding to is bad theology and bad teaching that's going on in the church. And I'm going to do a little something different today. I'm going to provide sort of a running commentary on the book of Jude, mainly because it's basically a combination of a sermon and an Old Testament lecture and a lot of hellfire and brimstone, which I'll explain. So before I do, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time we could come together and learn from your word. I pray that you'll help us to understand what your word is speaking to us today and that you'll use your word through the power of your Holy Spirit to transform our lives from the inside out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first couple verses of the book of Jude read this way. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So Jude begins his letter by saying that he's Christ's servant and James' brother. And James was the brother of Jesus, so Jude was the brother of Jesus. And James was held in such high esteem in the early church. And the reason that Jude does this is to lend himself some credibility. He's like, hey man, I'm legit. And he sends a nice blessing that you almost always see in those New Testament letters. Grace, mercy, peace, love, all that good stuff I send unto you. 
And Jude is an epistle written to the church in general. It's called a general epistle because it's something that the entire early church had to kind of pass around. They all needed to hear. And then he gets down to business and he tells these people why he's writing to them. So verses 3 through, five, three through 4 say this. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share... I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So Jude says, I really wanted to write an encouraging letter to you guys, but you know what? We're not quite there yet. He says, you need to contend. You need to fight for the faith, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because people are challenging it left and right. And even from the beginning of the church, the gospel has always been challenged. That's why when you read through these New Testament epistles, there's always an emphasis on good teaching, good doctrine, good theology. Because in every single era of the church, the good news of Jesus gets twisted and the gospel gets warped into something that we don't recognize. And this is why the church had all these councils in its first 300, 400 years. Because there was such bad theology there that it really deterred them from their mission to spread the gospel and make disciples. And Jude says that there are ungodly people who have crept into your presence and are trying to lead you astray. And notice how Jude says that they abuse, that they abuse not only the grace that God has given them, but they also deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. So they have bad theology and they have bad practice. They, they deny the power of Jesus Christ and they twist the grace of God to justify satisfying their sinful desires. And this is the problem that the early church was facing. And Jude goes on to remind these people of the faith that beholds these wolves in sheep's clothing. And this comprises the majority of the book. Now, before I go any further, let me say this. Jude is responding to people inside the church. He's not saying, look at society and how immoral it is. Look how, how much sin there is in all society, how bad the world is. He's saying, look, look what's inside the church. Look what you have allowed to creep in. This is a church problem, not a societal problem that Jude addresses. So I want to be very clear about that. So in this next section of the book, Job, Jude literally goes hellfire and brimstone. And he quotes the Old Testament profusely. And he even quotes a couple books that aren't even in the Bible. And I'll explain some of that as we continue on in the text. So verses 5 through 8 read this. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer punishment of eternal fire. And in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. So Jude's making an argument straight out from the Old Testament. Why? Because his readers probably knew the Old Testament through and through. And he cites three examples, okay? 
The first being those Israelites whom God freed under the oppressive hand of the Egyptians and yet didn't believe that God would lead them into the promised land. And what was their fate? God let them die in the desert because of their disbelief. The second example here is those angels that rebelled with Satan against God and left heaven. What is their fate? They're in hell because they rebelled against the almighty God who they could see face to face. The third example is Sodom and Gomorrah. These towns filled with all kinds of evil and immorality. What is their fate? Eternal hellfire. And he goes on to say, these ungodly people who deny Jesus in your midst and who actively try to distort God's grace, they're no better than disbelieving Israelites. They're no better than rebellious angels. They're no better than vile people. They're all in the same category. And that may seem harsh, but if you deny God, you're in the same company as all these people. And I think the point that Jude is trying to convey is that there will always be rebellion against God in some way, shape, or form. And in the case of this book, rebellion is taking it away of bad teachers who are trying to lead the church astray. And like I said, he's not talking to people who aren't Christians. Paul says that we have no business judging those on the outside. That's the realm of God himself. Jude is targeting people who call themselves Christians and yet don't believe or act like it. And he goes on to say this in verses 9 through 11. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And that first part about Michael, that's probably a story. It's not found in Scripture. It's from a book uh, outside of Scripture called The Assumption of Moses. And the interesting thing here is that Jude treats this historical event as historical. And what he's saying is that Michael, who's one of the most powerful angels that we see in Scripture, one of the most powerful angels in the kingdom of God, he fought with the devil for Moses' body, most likely because the body would have become an object of worship and reverence, something Michael wanted to prevent, but the devil would have welcomed and loved because it deterred from worship of the one true God. And Michael's reaction is this, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if I came face to face with the devil, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd be as gracious, okay? And what Jude says is that even Michael left the condemning up to God. But these false teachers don't. They slander what they don't understand because they're driven not by faith, not by submission to the lordship of Jesus, but by their own sinful desires. And Jude pronounces judgment on all these people. He says, you're no different than Cain who murdered his brother Abel. You're no different than Balaam who thought he could kill what God had blessed. And you're no different than Korah who rebelled against Moses and Aaron, God's anointed one. It's all the same. So Judah's been likening all these false teachers who deny the gospel to these different figures and peoples in the Old Testament that challenged God and rebelled against his ways and and incurred upon their souls doom. And and Jude continues on by addressing these false teachers head on. He says this in verses 12 through 19. He says, These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, 
autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up in their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people's, people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So so who or what is he describing here? He's describing really pompous, prideful people who do church because they get some sort of power trip on it. He's describing people who bend and twist God's word to suit their own desires. He's describing people who claim the name of Christ and yet believe and act like they don't know him at all. And that's exactly what the apostles foretold. And the reason Jude is so passionate about this is because the people who should care about good doctrine, about good theology, don't. Why? Because if we don't have good theology and we're not secure in our theological identity, who we are in Christ, we're bound to follow all kinds of winds and waves of doctrine. We're bound to find ourselves following false teachers and getting all into all sorts of trouble. So what do we do as Christians in light of these false teachers and these fake Christians that Jude addresses? He says this in verse 20. He says, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt and save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. It's simple. You build yourselves up in your faith, meaning you keep growing and growing in your faith because the more you you do that, the more you'll be able to know what's good and what's bad. You'll get the gift of discernment. And you also pray in the Holy Spirit and throw yourself at the mercy of Almighty God and keep yourself in God's love by living right and honorably unto God. And he says, have mercy on people who are struggling. Now, when you read through Jude, you're like, dude, where's the compassion? Where's the love, man? There's the love. This isn't a book that doesn't leave you without hope. He says, have mercy, because God's word will never leave you without hope. And Jude ends his letter with what I like to call a backhanded benediction. He says this, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forever. Amen. I'm sure you guys have all heard that. That's one of the most famous benedictions in all of Scripture and in all in Christendom. Now, why do I call this a backhanded benediction? Because when Jude says to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, He's basically saying, don't think you're any better than the people that I've just chided. He says, you can't do this on your own. It's the power of Jesus to keep you wandering off from God. 
So what does this mean for us today? What kind of course corrections do we need to make? Well, I think the first kind of course correction that we need to make is that we need to remain rooted in the gospel. Now, when we read this tiny little book, it's easy for us to say, I know who he's talking about. He's talking about those darn TV preachers and those pastors that wear those fancy clothes and drive the Mercedes and take widow's money. And he's talking about those people that drink, smoke, and chew and go with girls that do. I grew up in in a a church like that, so that's kind of how I was raised. But really, this is a warning to the entire church. And when I read this book, I'm like, thank God I'm not like that. But in reality, I should be saying, Lord, please don't let me be like that. Please don't let me be someone who calls myself a Christian and yet doesn't act like it. And it's, it's that same kind of sensitivity that we need to have when we read Scripture. Because the human heart is so easily captivated by the wrong things. And it's easy to deceive yourself into thinking you're okay with God when you're really not. And that's the message of the book of Jude. Is that we need to remain on guard from false teachings in the church. False teachings that we believe and false practices that we embrace with our whole hearts. We need to be on guard from that. Now, how do you guard your heart from false teaching and false teachers? I think your lifestyle is marked by a commitment to knowing God through his word and being able to articulate good theology, the gospel. And for some of you, you may not be giving too many thoughts about theology. To some of you, theology may be some abstract academic discipline reserved for the Bible nerd. But our theology is what drives us as a church. We believe wholeheartedly that God sent his son Jesus to save us from our sins. And he has empowered us through the Holy Spirit to live as agents of redemption in this broken world. That's the gospel and that's good theology right there. Without that, we might as well become a club of people who like to get together and sing Kumbaya and eat donuts once a month. That's what we amount to if we don't have good teaching. And we need to remain firm in our theology and not water it down at all. Because if you study church history and sociology, you'll find that church movements, that in an effort to try to reach out to culture, they end up watering down their theology. And they always fail time and again. And when I say water down, I mean either sugarcoat God's word or outright reject certain doctrines that make us feel uncomfortable. There was a study done by the Pew Forum that was released earlier this week, and and this study detailed the state of religion here in America, and the results are really interesting. They're both very discouraging and very encouraging as well. The study shows that in the last seven years, the number of Christians in the U.S. have declined by almost 8%. The number of unaffiliated people, or the nuns, as as we call them sometimes, have grown by almost 6.7%. So on the surface, it sounds pretty bleak. But, but if you look at the study just a little closer, you'll find that Roman Catholics have declined by 3.1%. That mainline Protestants have declined by 3.4%. But evangelical Protestants, people kind of like us, they've declined by only 0.9%. Now, for those of you who are really bad at math, that's less than 1%. Okay? <laughs> that's not too shabby, people. Okay? See, evangelical churches like ours have said that we're going to continue being the church, even if our theology is outdated, even if some uh, some of our beliefs may be exclusivistic or old-fashioned or irrelevant. Why? Because we believe that the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of God's word is way too important for us to budge on. 
Okay? It's important that this is why Jude, he went to such great lengths to demonstrate just how important it is for us to remain firm in our Christian identities. Because if we're not holding to the true faith, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're pointless. And we're not being the light or the life that this broken, dying world needs. This world needs the church to be the church. And we need to remain rooted firmly in the gospel. And I think another course correction that we need to make is that our practices must reflect our theological convictions. And as you read through the book of Jude, you see that theology and practice are, are kind of tied to one another. If you believe, like the false teachers that Jude describes, that God's grace can be twisted so you can follow your own desires, then that theology you espouse is going to influence the poor choices that you're bound to make. And as a result, you're going to incur judgment on your soul. And if you believe, like these false teachers, that Jesus isn't God's son, you run the risk of not submitting your whole life to his lordship, which has radical implications. So theology and practice can't be separated. Theology will always influence your practice, and your practice will always influence your theology. And one of the big things we're discussing right now in our leadership team here at Covenant is how evident our theology is and our practices as a church. So we're trying to make changes that reflect what we believe. And one of those changes has been the way that we've done worship. Whereas before we'd front load our worship songs and leave one at the end. That's what we would do. But we believe that God's word and the preaching of God's word is something that we need to respond to with our whole hearts. So what we've done is it's moved a couple songs toward the end of the service, and it's a small change in the way that we do it, but we do it because we want everyone to respond to what God has said through his word and pour out our souls to him. So that's the big change that we've made with worship. And another change that we're going to be making here next week is in regard to communion. You see, we here at Covenant Church believe firmly that communion is an act of worship. It's a time where we individually and as a community come together to celebrate all that God has done for us through Christ. It's a time where we reflect on the sacrifice of our Savior and respond to him through worship. And it is a time where we literally taste the death that is wrapped up with hope of the new life. It is an act of worship where we come together and celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. And what we're going to be doing next week is we'll be moving communion to after the sermon. And we're not going to pass around cups. We're not going to pass around bread. What we're going to do is we're going to have some bread up here. We're going to have some cups so you can come up here as you feel led after the service, during worship, after the sermon, during uh, the worship, as you feel led. Why? Because we believe that this is the time where you respond to what God has said through his word and worship him through the taking of bread and juice. And we'll be sending out an email this week just to kind of uh, work on the logistics of that. Now I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. And while we worship, I want you to think about where you're at with God. Maybe you're here and you don't know God. If you don't, today's the perfect time to know him. Maybe you're here and you believe all the right things about God, but your heart is far from him. Maybe you're here and you have a solid relationship with God, but there are some blind spots that you need to work on in your life. The message of Jude is this, that we can be okay with God, but we can also think that we're okay with God, and that's far worse than not being okay with God. So I want us to stand. 
And as you feel led, you can just come up here and pray, worship, pour your heart out to God.